0: Hi there, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I've had a checkered week. Um, I managed to drop my phone down the toilet and it didn't recover. And that sort of reminded me of just how dependent I've become on being connected, how anxious I felt when I had to leave the house and had no way of knowing what was going on or speaking to people or or whatever. Um, I did manage, when I finally got the new phone delivered, uh, I did manage to transfer all my stuff across, which made me feel very digitally competent, which is quite an unusual feeling. Um, But it was a traumatic uh, event nonetheless. So please do not drop your phone down the toilet. I think this is sound advice. Back to work. And um, at least that did not stop me blogging all week. Um, so let me talk you through the posts. So first up was the usual Monday links. I liked. I have this nice image in my head of people, you know, clicking on it to avoid work uh, on a Monday morning. I'm not sure if it's true. The numbers suggest probably not, but anyway, it's that's the that's the fantasy I have. Um, I talked a bit about the uh, the lecture series which I've been organising with James Putzel at the LSE, which we uh, modestly called cutting edge issues in development thinking and practice, because last week. Um, was Harjun Chang who gave a fantastic lecture on the political economy of Parasite, the movie, but also updated it to include The Squid Game, which I'm now watching, and I'm getting slightly um, uh, caught up by. Um, we've got, and th- this year we're we're doing a lot more around each lecture. So there's some really good student write-ups. they're, they're sort of developing their blogging skills. There's a YouTube video, and there's now a podcast as well. So we, you've got no excuse for not catching up if you miss these lectures. Uh, Yesterday was Claire Short uh, on what's wrong with aid, uh, um, to which the short answer is a lot, and she talked about it very well. Um, Next week, we've got Mushtaq Khan talking about corruption, anti-corruption work, which should also be really interesting. So do tune in. They're they're on Friday afternoons at four o'clock. So I reckon it's totally legitimate to bunk off work and say, I'm done for the week and I'm going to listen to an interesting lecture. The other thing I I talked about, links I liked, was... um, one of those wonderful bonkers stories where um, the UK Health Minister, Matt Hancock, was bizarrely appointed as by the UN's Economic Commission for Africa as the Special Representative for Financial Innovation and Climate Change. So as people pointed out on lots of Twitter outrage, he doesn't know much about financial innovation. He's never worked on climate change and he's a disgraced health minister who resigned after breaking COVID rules uh, while having an affair. So uh and he knows very little about Africa. So what on earth was he doing, uh being appointed? And to to my amazement, and yeah, I thought this this was a kind of political version of a thing called Swedo, Stuff We Don't Want, which is when, you know, there's a the, people start sending old T shirts to Africa and things like that. Uh Matt t- Matt Hancock was a political equivalent of an old T shirt, I think. Um and the update uh, on this, which was fascinating, was that um, Ecker withdrew the offer. <laughs> they, were so, they were so influenced by all this uh, outrage and complaint. So well done, social media. Um, stop one stupid thing happening, which is, you know, worth better than nothing. That's enough on links I liked. The rest of the week I hand it over to two colleagues, Irene Hout and Ruth Main, who've been doing a really interesting project called Inspiring Radically Better Futures and they just published the, uh, the paper on that project. And so they took three posts to talk through um, uh, this project, and I will talk you through it um, in their words. So first of all, they introduced the project. So with COP26 looming, everyone is hoping again. We hope that world leaders will make the bold decisions needed to reduce the scale of inevitable climate change. But what Sarah Palin once memorably called that hopey changey stuff has gotten a hard rap recently. Take Greta Thunberg's retort about world leaders. I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. Hope is a familiar smokescreen for politicians of all leanings who use superficial references to small successes to divert attention from deeper structural problems. Others though refer to it as a life raft, all we have left to keep despair at bay. To quote President Obama, Hope is that stubborn thing inside us that insists, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that something better awaits us so long as we have the courage to keep reaching, to keep working, to keep fighting. Hope matters, it's the fuel for change, the currency on which progressive movements often rely. The hope of change keeps them pitching in to fight injustice and suffering. The world needs hope more than ever, given the frightening convergence of three massive crises environmental destruction, economic inequality, and injustices rooted in patriarchy and racism. These make for horrific daily headlines that make solutions feel more out of reach than ever. Hope for better times motivates people, governments, and businesses to invest time and resources in countering these crises. But while many activists contrive to strive for change, even against the odds, many others fall into despair or denial. Opinion polls have shown that while increasing majorities of people are concerned about the climate crisis, many feel powerless to make a meaningful difference. Hence, this research. We believe an evidence base for hope can help inspire and motivate action and show people how they can help make change happen. It can be used to demand change from governments and the private sector. Four evidence gaps stand out. First, While there is increasing recognition about the need for a transformative systemic change, there is less understanding about how intentional systemic change can be achieved and what it takes to tip the scales into a new normal. Second, much evidence is about micro project level success or national level macro change. But there's a meso level change, a vital but neglected arena for transformative change that involves many change agents, including civil society actors, at a scale that goes beyond the local, but smaller than the uh, the national. A third gap are examples of structural change in tough places. The impacts of systemic crises tend to be felt more intensely in lower income countries where people are more vulnerable with far fewer resources to respond. Countries with weak or fragile governments, conflict, restricted political space and extreme inequalities or injustices may also find it harder to mitigate or adapt to crises. Is radical impact at scale possible in such places? A fourth gap is around scaling and what it takes, for example, for local efforts aimed at ending female genital mutilation to grow into a cross-continent movement or for governments to support scaling of solutions rather than symptoms. So Oxfam decided to start filling these gaps and launched a search and call for cases to address these questions. How can impact at scale be achieved in poor places what type and mix of structural changes are needed, what timescales are involved, and what scale and type of impacts can be achieved and how inclusive are they? So that was our introductory post. And then in the second post, they got seriously geeky. They then introduced the methodology for this, this research. The first step was to establish the research focus, thematically, geographically, and historically. We wanted evidence of change related to one of these three crises, economic inequality, gender injustice, or environmental destruction. One of the biases in the existing evidence base is its focus on wealthy OECD contexts. Less is is documented on structural solutions in context with low income uh, uh, or human human development indicators, restricted political rights or extreme inequalities or, or, or conflict. Third, we wanted to learn from the past, but not rehash iconic historic examples such as slavery or women's suffrage. What could learn about what could Dr. learn about new tactics, new opportunities? As our focus was on structural change, we were not looking for tweaks or nudges to existing existing ways of working, small islands of success, or work that, that tackles symptoms. We saw, we sought evidence of structural changes, going beyond local. Um, without duplicating documentation on national level change. Finally, we wanted examples with sufficiently robust evidence. Much anecdotal evidence exists, but we zoomed in on examples of change substantiated by credible sources with underlying data. It was surprisingly difficult to find examples. So then they got on to the findings. That was the third post of the week. And they did a big trawl. They, 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 they got a long list of 80 case studies and then they applied the criteria that I just described. They came down to 18. In reversing gender injustice, they came down to uh, some really interesting work on shifting norms, for example, female genital mutilation in West Africa, or engaging fathers in transforming gender relations. Um, but they also did, found work on uh, women's political participation, labour rights um, and improving services. In mitigating climate and environmental crisis, they had examples from Cuba and the Sahel on regreening. They had examples from Zambia on reducing energy poverty, from Brazil on biodiversity, and then making climate change adaptation inclusive from East Africa. And then on reducing economic inequality, they have Colombia's uh, inclusive and green transit system. Um, so Some examples on equitable business models uh, from social enterprises, but also from Unilever, a big multinational. Some work on land rights justice from Honduras and some work on taxing high net worth individuals from Uganda. So as you can see, there's a big spread, um, big geographical spread, an enormous range of topics and um, efforts which they identified as meeting the criteria in these 18 case studies. So then they analysed them. And they said, although none of these cases was perfect, as a set, they offer important insights. So first, uh, the first sort of set of insights was what was transformed. Well, um, structural change to dominant economic and political systems is possible and happening right now, even in some of the world's toughest contexts. They looked at examples of uh, Mencare in Rwanda, Tostan and others in West Africa who challenged and transformed social norms about men's caring roles and FGM. Um, <clears throat> Structural change offers a powerful and rapid way of achieving positive impact at scale. The cases generated over 40 different types of social, economic, or environmental benefits. It's possible to mitigate poverty, inequalities, and the climate crisis simultaneously. Twelve of the 18 cases generated benefits that helped to mitigate two or two or more systemic crises simultaneously. So how did scaling happen? And this is where they get a bit more um, technical. The shortlisted cases reach scale by three pathways. The first was vertical scaling, which occurs when large governments and companies use their size, reach uh, uh, power and resources to expand an initiative. So they pick something up, spread it. this may be either due to their own volition or the result of successful influencing by others. But horizontal scaling, which is often overlooked, is a powerful pathway. It involves the widespread copying or adaptation of a solution by other actors, either spontaneously or through organised diffusion. And they saw examples of this in West Africa, Pakistan, and India on things like transforming social norms on FGM or transforming government services. And then functional scaling involves organisations intentionally increasing the scope, pace, or scale of change through iterative adaptations and improvements of their original strategy. And some organizations use all three. They talk, um, the, one example is the Mahila Housing uh, Trust run by the Self-Employed Women's Association, this massive uh, social movement in, in India, which mobilizes and empowers women by creating community-based organizations, horizontal scaling, which then influence local authorities to improve service delivery, vertical scaling, and test out improved services, functional scaling, which in turn helps foster further vertical and then horizontal scaling. So when did these successes happen? In nearly all cases, transformative change occurred due to the interactions between intentional change strategies, shifting power relations, and macro pressures and opportunities such as the climate crisis or solutions to systemic problems. In nearly half the cases, scaling accelerated when actors took advantage of an immediate window of opportunity, such as the end of a conflict, a a new government or international support. So that's music to my ears, because one of the things I teach when I'm I'm teaching activism at, at the LSE, is that activists have to be ready to grab these windows of opportunity, which are often unforeseen. They have to spot them and grab them. And if you want to make change happen, it's all about how you grab those windows, rather than the perfectness um, the perfection of your plan. Um, so you've got to be nimble, think on your feet, and this research bears that out. Who drove it? Well in line with systems thinking, few actors achieved scale on their own. Change was the outcome of mutually reinforcing actions by governments, the private sector and all civil society. And what now? And this is their sort of final peroration. The cases provide evidence of hope. They show that transformative change that tackles the root causes of current crises is possible, even in tough contexts. The unfolding inequality and climate crises will generate further pressures and shocks that will likely catalyze further far-reaching change. The risk is that powerful incumbents will use such crises to further their own interests to the detriment of people and planet. The future direction and speed of change will depend critically on governments, civil society, and mission-led businesses investing in, expanding and accelerating the development and scaling of the kind of transformative, inclusive and sustainable solutions offered by these case studies. Or in Greta Thunberg's recent words, hope is taking action and hope always comes from the people. So that's, I mean, for me, that's a really fine piece of work. 18 case studies isn't very much, and I'd love to see a much bigger exercise if that's possible, but you know, I think the patterns they spotted are really interesting. And I think the work is really worth reading. And on that uh, upbeat note, uh, and with a totally functioning telephone, which I'm not taking anywhere near the toilet for the next six months, um, have a great weekend. Bye.